this year, the theme has been unashamed, undaunted, and unstoppable. And we're teaching you concepts and principles from the Word of God where you can be unashamed and undaunted by the challenges of the enemy and virtually unstoppable and as you move forward towards your destiny and in your relationship with God. The latest series that we're in is Living in the Dimension Beyond Average. This is my seventh time to speak on this subject. That's how long we've been in this series because it's drawn from Acts chapter 2, the last six verses, and there's huge amounts of material there that I could virtually spend a couple of years on. That's how profound those verses are. The reason I'm taking the time to address this, and as I said, this is my seventh time. We've had others help us, and we'll continue to have others help us in this series. Andrew's spoken. Steve Miller's spoken. Uh, Pastor Donnie's going to speak during this series, as will Pastor Joe. But as we move forward through this, the reason we're talking about living in the dimension beyond average is simply because most believers do not live anywhere but average. Average lives, average finances, average marriages, average kids, average job, average beans on the table, average, just average, everything about their life is average. Living in an average neighborhood, we're stuck firmly, planted, rooted, cemented, concreted, welded even into average. And that is not what I see happen to the early church. Now, they started out average, as I mentioned when I first began this series. Even those who were their detractors, who hated them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, examining the founders of the church, their earliest pastors and spiritual leadership, the apostles, said of the apostles, these are average men, average. Um, they were not even people with degrees. Ordinary men is what the scriptures literally says. And yet, they went from crucifying the Lord, the people in Jerusalem did, to going 180 degrees the opposite direction, and not only embracing Christianity, now that in itself is phenomenal, because if they crucified the Lord, you would think that <laughs> you're a follower, you don't want to be seen. You're a follower of Jesus, and they just crucified your, your leader. They're coming after you next, astonishingly. The people did a 180-degree reverse turn and began to embrace the Christian faith so much so that it started out with the Lord added to the church daily, then multitudes, and then great multitudes as the number of believers were multiplied, the Bible said, greatly. What caused that? And we've been looking at the reasons why. There were a number of things that the early church did that I think set the stage for this reversal in terms of their branding or the perception of who they were in the first century. And it's not unlike, you know, the ingredients in a cake or in a good meal. I am not, please, I'm going to confess up front. I'm about to dive in over my head. I am a good eater of good food. Amen. I am a connoisseur of good cooking. I know when it's good and I know when it isn't. Amen. And I am married to one of the best cooks, little Cajun cooks you've ever met in your life. And she has been a great blessing to me. She was tutored by her mother, who is a great Cajun cook, but I can barely boil water. And what's more, I have no desire to ever learn 
because I can never compete. Don't want to. I don't do stuff unless I can get good at it. Amen. And right now, I just I gave up on that because she is so outstanding. But I do know that if you leave an ingredient out that's supposed to be in there, it affects the way it turns out. You forget to put something in that cake, and it's not going to be the same. And we serve rice with everything in Louisiana. They did when I was growing up. I mean everything. Everything. Well, Boudreaux went to the hamburger shop one time, and and he ordered a hamburger, and he said, all the way. And they said, Bood, you want that all the way? He said, yes, all the way, everything on it. He said, on second thought, hold the rice, amen. <laughs> and that's just about how it was in my house when we were growing up. We ate rice with everything. Still do. It's not a meal without rice. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, would on occasion forget to put salt in the rice. And when she would set the, the table and we would sit down to eat, she would know it immediately, and she'd say, oh, my God, I forgot to salt the rice. And do you know it affected the taste of everything on the table? Because you can't compensate by putting salt in the beans or the gravy or to make up for it not being in the rice. Every one of those ingredients together produce a particular result. And so we've been looking at the things the early Christians did that produced this particular result of this amazing turnaround in how they were perceived in their culture, so much so that the world lined up at their door wanting to get in. And there is a, are a couple of things that I want to move on to. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We've talked about that. And to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. We've talked about fellowship. Do you have any other fellows in your ship? And a prayer. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Father, speak to us today. Teach us your ways. Show us your ways. Let them be so persuasive that they change the way we think because our thoughts are far beneath yours. Yours are higher than ours, as are the heavens above the earth. And we in our arrogance think sometimes we know so much until we see the simple truth of the Word of God and we're reminded that we need you. We don't know as much as we thought we did. So I come to you with my heart open asking you to speak to me today and I pray that we all would do the same. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. As a result of the things that we've already shared that is, they're being infilled with and empowered with the Holy Spirit, all of them, the great degree of unity they experienced, they were together in all things. The passion they had to be faithful to the Word of God and not try to change the teachings of the Bible to fit the current culture of their time, as is being done today. Their passion to be connected to each other and fellowship, their profound love for one another, all of these things together with what I've just read, they also prayed. All of these things together caused a profound effect. It caused the fear of the Lord to come upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
they lived in an atmosphere that was continuously supernatural. How many of you have lived long enough to realize that someday everybody, everyone is going to need a miracle? I mean a real miracle. I'm not talking about luck or serendipity. I'm not talking about a good turn or a helping hand or good fortune. I'm talking about a, about a real bona fide, hell-chasing, earth-shaking, demon-routing miracle. You're going to need one in the course of your life. You don't live in this broken world without at some point encountering a situation where you need help from above. Sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in a position where you're going to need God to show up and divinely intervene in your circumstance. You're going to need a miracle. I mean that. You're going to need a miracle. I heard a story the other day of a man who encountered a bit of trouble while flying in his little airplane, and he called the control tower, and he said, pilot to tower, I'm 300 miles from the airport, 600 feet above the ground, and I'm out of fuel. We've got a couple of traffic controllers in the service right now. I hope they never have to hear this. And this guy said, I am descending rapidly. Please advise. Over. Tower to pilot, the dispatcher began. Repeat after me. Our Father, which art in heaven. (laughs) When you're 300 miles from the airport and out of fuel, you better know how to pray. You're going to need God's help. Or this one, Boudreaux. (laughs) Amen. The air traffic controller in Louisiana, a pilot was approaching the airport and radioed in for instructions, and Boudreaux advised him to use runway east and signed out. A second airline pilot radioed in and requested instructions, and Boudreaux advised him to use runway west. Wait a minute, the second pilot said, didn't I just hear you instruct the other pilot to use runway east, and now you've instructed me to use runway west? Boudreaux answered, Yeah, that's right, Shad. Y'all be careful here. (laughs) Sometimes you can't be careful enough. Sometimes you just need God to intervene in your circumstance. Am I talking to anybody that knows what I am talking about? Where you could say, had it not been for the Lord who was on my side, now may Israel say, How would you like to have a beyond average prayer and devotional life and live in a continuous state of the supernatural? The first Christians literally experienced this kind of prayer and devotional life. They lived in the tangible fear of the Lord, and as a result, God did big things in their lives. We know what prayer is, but what is the fear of the Lord? Like most children, when I was very little, I was afraid to go to bed at night. Anybody else the same way? My grandmother used to tell me that's because I was so mean during the day. (laughs) I was a great deal like Calvin in my favorite cartoon strip, Calvin and Hobbes. I confess to you that at this stage in my life, I don't care who knows it, I like Calvin and Hobbes. Amen. Calvin is this precocious six-year-old with an overly active imagination and his stuffed tiger, Hobbes, who in Calvin's imagination is alive. And so when it comes time to go to bed at night, Calvin is shown with this little dart gun, and, and Hobbes is dangling Calvin's tennis shoe over the edge of the bed, and underneath the bed, there is this, this creature with slanted red eyes drooling on the floor. And so Calvin 
is there waiting to, to, to nail him as soon as Hob lures him out with his tennis shoe. How many of you remember when you were kids when your imagination was just that active? And the moonlight coming in through the window and having to be filtered through the tree outside the bedroom window. Cast these reflections of multi-winged dragons on your wall. Oh, come on now. Help me out. I'm going to ask you a question. You don't tell the truth, you're going to go to hell. You hear what I'm saying. How many of you experienced times like that as a child? Let me see. Yeah. Rest of you, liar, liar, pants on fire. Oh, wait a minute. I know what it was. You slept between mom and dad at night. You didn't, you didn't have any reason to be afraid. Amen. I would tell my grandmother, I'm afraid. And she would say, son, God is protecting you, and he has positioned angels all around you to protect you. And she said, all I had to do was just pray, and the fear would go away. Today, I don't want to talk about praying until the fear goes away. I want to talk about praying until the fear comes. The fear of the Lord. Pray until the fear comes. And of course, I'm talking about praying until we experience the fear or the reverence of the Lord. And many people in today's world have lost that. You don't see it out there in secular society. You're not going to find it in your office building as a rule. Many of your neighbors have no fear of God. You're not going to find it in universities. You're not going to find it in politics. You're going to go a long way looking for an awareness of, of the fear of the Lord. And what's worse is even in churches, the fear of the Lord is largely missing. People today can live and act any way they want, and regardless of the teachings of Scripture, they do not have the slightest concern about doing so. And I'm going to say this, believers can live wicked lives. Curse and use profanity, lie and deceive, cheat and steal. Live immorally and never think twice about whether it pleases or displeases God. I'm not talking about the world right now. I'm talking about Christians. And when I say that many people have lost the fear of the Lord, understand that I'm not talking about experiencing terror or fright. The fear of the Lord, according to the word book dictionary, if you look up the word fear, and also if you were to go to the advanced English dictionary, along with many others, the word fear does not just mean alarm or concern. It also means, and I quote, a feeling of profound respect for someone or something such as the fear of the Lord. They give synonyms there in your dictionary for fear, and they are reverence, awe, veneration. Amen. The fear of the Lord is the profound reverence of God. When it says the early believers prayed and then experienced the fear of the Lord, it means they had an awe of God that bordered on a holy sense of dread, lest they grieve God. It wasn't being paralyzed in activity. If you were to visit Africa, and as you know, I've been there literally thousands of times at this point. And in the Serengeti, because I've been through that so many times, if you were to watch the lion as they hunt, the roar of the lion is, is, is something that all of us have heard about, and some of us have even heard. But what you might not realize is, is that when that lion has crept up on its prey and issues that roar, 
it paralyzes its prey for a split second. Just enough to give that lion an advantage as it leaps. It has fast twitch muscle fibers. And it leaps and achieves an astonishing degree of speed in just a matter of seconds. And it's upon that gazelle or that wildebeest or whatever it is that it has been stalking. When I talk about fear, I'm not not talking about being paralyzed in in activity like the prey of the lion. The fear of the Lord is the reverence of God. And in Scripture, the early believers experienced a great reverence and awe of God. They saw God as big. I mean big. Bigger than anything else that existed by comparison. They saw him as mighty. Mightier than any problems they faced or challenges that came against them. And seeing God as great and seeing God as holy always creates in us a sense of wanting to live righteously before God. And the early believers loved and regarded God so highly that they wanted to please him. Last Sunday, I told you that in the course of my own relationship with God through the years, when I first got saved as a new believer, I did not sense the nearness of the presence of God. He was there. He was there all the time. He was right there. Only my mind did not allow me to be able to understand that. I was alienated from God in my previous life and now coming into the family of God, I had to change my thinking because in my thinking, he was still just as far away as he was before I got saved. During the years, I have experienced this marvelous transition where I have reached this blessed place in my life where he is my ever-present friend. I don't care what I'm doing or where I am or who I am with. He's right there beside me. And I am keenly cognizant of that fact. And I'm not going to say anything in conversation that disappoints my buddy, my Lord. He's closer to me than anyone else that exists in this world. And that's saying a lot because I love my family. I love you. And so I'm not going to take him anywhere that I don't want him to go. I'd be embarrassed to bring him. I don't want to do anything that would shame him. I literally pray every day of my life, Lord, forgive me of any shortcomings and failings in my life and help me to live in such a way that I bring you glory. That's all I want to do the rest of my life. I want to call attention to him. And whenever you are aware of this profound nearness of God, It affects the way you live. And all of this grows out of two things. It grows out of your personal prayer and secondly, your personal devotional life. Your prayer life and your devotional life. They prayed and they loved the word of God and did not change the doctrine of the teachings of the Bible. But rather changed their life to comply with the teachings of the word of God. The result was... There was an unbelievable awe of God, a reverence of God that was created. And as a result of that, there was supernatural activity everywhere. They lived in a dimension of the supernatural. People ask me all the time, Pastor, why don't we see miracles the way they used to, like we read about in the Bible? And there's your answer right there. The answer is simply that most people do not have a developed personal prayer life or devotional life. That's not an accusation. I just happen to know that many believers pray very little. That sense of reverential awe is missing because believers are not taking the time out to get close to God in relationship 
And the result is, is that we don't see the supernatural as much as we need to. And will we ever need it? You betcha. But then it's going to be like making a long-distance call and hoping that somebody's on the other end of the line to pick up the phone. Speaking of the hand of God working supernaturally on our behalf, I can promise you that because, again, I want to say this up front, frame all that I'm going to say through this, this particular matrix. I want you to see this. Life is set up because we have an enemy in such a way that in this fallen, broken world, you're going to face things that you can't get through by yourself. And you're going to need God's divine and supernatural intervention to successfully get through them. It might be your health, it might be your job, your finances, your marriage, I don't know what it is, your kids, but I can promise you it's going to occur. I'll never forget when I learned that lesson. My son Jonathan was only three years of age, Shelly was one. We were traveling in evangelistic ministry, and in those days we pulled a fifth wheel travel trailer. We went through three of them. We pulled them all over the country, and we we preached revivals. I just returned from a tour through Indiana and Kentucky and came home at Christmas time. And we parked in Jerry, Jerry's uh, parents' yard, and her mom asked, can we keep Jonathan tonight? And uh, no, we actually parked at the church that time, forgive me, and uh, I want to make sure I get the story right. And so about 1.30 in the morning, uh, we received, an, there was a knock at the door, and I woke up all groggy and sleepy and opened the door, and there's Jerry's eldest, uh, second uh, eldest brother standing there, and he's, he's crying. He said, you better get to the hospital right away. Jonathan can't breathe. And I mean, what, like, what? We left him just a short while ago, and he's playing and running everywhere and happy to be home with his grandparents and in the space of just three hours, we were in, and two hours, we were in three different emergency rooms. We went from Sulphur, the emergency room, by ambulance because they couldn't deal with him, help him, to Lake Charles. And there was a guy that had done surgery on me when I was there, big burly guy, bear of a guy. He went back there after asking me, what are you doing here? I said, it's my son. He said, let me go check on him. He came back out and just threw his arms around me and pulled me close and said, I'm so sorry. He said, they're going to have to send him to Beaumont because there's something going on neuro- neuro- uh, neurologically. And Jonathan, whatever the mechanism is in his brain that makes a person breathe, it stopped. And we don't know why. And we went to uh, Beaumont and I guess they next would have sent us to Houston. But in two hours, three different emergency rooms in two different states, and they wheeled my son into the emergency room there in Beaumont, and they called out Dr. Kabata, a, a neurologist, and he went in, and he wasn't in there but just a little while, and they pushed Jonathan back out. Jerry and I, in that drive from Lake Charles to Beaumont, never said a word to each other. We prayed the entire time. There were others praying. Prayer warriors across the nation, they had set up a phone relay brigade, if you please, and one would call another, would call another. And just a few minutes after Jonathan being in the emergency room, they pushed him back out. And I said, doctor, what's going on? He said, just a minute. They brought him to the room and he said, you guys come. We went into the room and he was all smiles. And he said, we don't know what happened. He said, something shut down the command center in Jonathan's brain that makes him breathe. And we don't know what it was, and we could not get it activated. We don't know what to do to get it activated. All we could do was just breathe for him mechanically with ventilators. And whatever it was, he said, 
it stopped and it kicked in again. And we don't know what made it stop and we don't know what made it start. But he said, that boy is a different boy than you brought in here just a few minutes ago. And he went to the door and he said, we, we just don't have no idea what made him start breathing again. Opened the door and, stuck, and stepped out one foot into the hall and turned around and he smiled. And he said, let me correct that. I said, we don't know what made him start breathing again, but we do, don't we? And he looked at us with a knowing smile and he said, somebody in here has been praying, haven't they? And closed the door. Yes, sir, buddy. You're going to need God to intervene at some point in your life. And when it happens, you don't want to have to suddenly decide to start dialing the number of some God that's on the other side of the galaxy. If you have built a daily devotional life, he's right here. You see, the major function of a daily devotional life should be about intimacy with God. The basic meaning of prayer is actually communication or adoration with deity. And you literally find that in the teachings of the Word of God. If you were to go to the dictionary, you'll find it there as well. The Greek word in Acts 2 that says the disciples prayed daily, what it really says is they worshipped. It's the same root word for worship. To them, prayer was worship. And here's the rub. Most of us have been raised to believe in the church that prayer is about petition. You can go to any seminar on prayer, and it's always to teach you how to pray to get something, all about needs. And to be sure, Jesus said we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. But that is not the primary purpose of prayer. And the result of people having taught us that that was the primary purpose of prayer is that, you know what? If everything's going well and I've got Blue Cross Blue Shield and MD Anderson's right down uh, town and I've got St. Luke's, if I've got a heart problem, well, guess what? Got a great job. I don't really have a whole lot that I need, do I? And since our prayer life is based upon need rather than devotion, many of us don't have regular devotional lives. If you look at Collins' Dictionary, prayer is the activity of speaking to God. It is a personal communication or petition addressed to a deity, especially in the form of a supplication. That's asking. Adoration, praise, contrition, or thanksgiving. Out of the five things that it mentions that prayer is, asking is only one of them. It is also, according to the Word Book Dictionary, prayer is the act of communicating with a deity, especially as a petition or an adoration or contrition or thanksgiving. To us, asking makes up 99% of our prayer. And the truth is, it's supposed to be all about relationship. If you have anybody in your life that's always asking, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, you're going to learn to run and go the other direction. I'm not saying God does that because he welcomes us to come to him. But I mean, even your own children, if you buy them something really nice and five minutes later, daddy, daddy, can we have this? And will you buy it? And that's all you ever hear. After a while, you learn that maybe you're spoiling your child and you learn to say no to some things. And I wonder if one reason that our prayer lives are not more effective than they are is because we do not spend enough time in devotional intimacy, relating to God. Many believers, as I said, think that prayer is about asking, when really the primary function of prayer 
is drawing close to him in intimacy and the intimacy and the building of a relationship with him by building a daily everybody say that daily, daily. devotional life daily prayer and devotions help make god real to us that was the outcome of the early church praying god became very real because this world can be seen and god cannot if you don't pray i promise you god's going to get fuzzy around the edges the pixels are going to get blown out of shape. He's not going to be real clear to you. But daily prayer and devotions causes God or causes us to be aware of how near God is to us. The single greatest thing that could ever happen in your life outside of being saved is to experience the abiding presence of God every day of your life in a way that you're aware of. The daily abiding presence of God in a way that you recognize and are cognizant of. Because you see, most believers visit God. We visit him an hour and a half on Sunday. And the rest of the week, we go about our daily lives. Amen. A devotional life that is beyond average should begin in the home with your family. That's the context. Because God has a family and it's called the church. And you're his son and you're his daughter. And if you understand the dynamics of a devotional life within the context of a family, it changes your entire perspective of your relationship with God. Even though prayer is an intensely personal thing, it's best developed in the devotional experience of a family. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Who shall? You shall. And shall talk of them when you sit down in your house. Say that, when I sit down in my house. When you walk by the way. We don't walk anywhere anymore. So say, when I drive to the store, would you do that? When you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Go Google frontlet between the eyes in the dictionary, or rather on Google rather, uh, and, and see what it shows you. The Jewish people wrap something around their head with a little box right here that contained the verses. So here is the box above their eyes. And so what is elevated above what they see is the word of God. Not only that, everything they looked at is framed with the Word of God. They see that first and you second. They see the problem second. Everything is seen through the filter or the matrix of the Word of God. And it says that you shall also write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What? I thought we were supposed to do all this in church. Proverbs 4, 20 through 22, my son, give attention to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Proverbs is filled with devotions like these. These verses in Deuteronomy and in Proverbs beg the question, why should we have family devotions if we're attending church? Number one, Give you several reasons quickly. God's word tells us to do so. 
Did you know the early believers who first settled in this country, they were Christians? You might not hear that taught anymore in universities. But did you know that it's a condition of having communion in their church services? That if a man did not teach family devotions in his own house, they were excluded from being able to participate in the communion service we just enjoyed a moment ago. That was the condition. If you don't teach your own family in your house, you go back and you learn to set up family devotions and then come have communion with us. Number two, family worship will assist you in successful child rearing. I want to tell all of you parents and grandparents, there are forces at work today that were not at work when you were younger. And you better know they're pulling on your kids every single moment. And you need all the help you can get. Number three, you need family devotions in the home because the shortness of time calls for it. At this stage in my life, I look back, I marvel at how fast the fence posts have flown by the train window. I didn't dream life was moving so quickly. But now I look back and I remember when I held my son in my arms and then my daughter. And now they're grown and they have kids and we even have our first grand, great-grandchild. Rick Husband is a name that some of you would remember, but many of you will not. He was the commander of the ill-fated Columbia space shuttle that disintegrated in midair. Do you remember this? What's this? I remember it vividly. It's etched into my memory. I will never forget it. Some of you that are younger might not. Engines beginning throttling down now at 94%. Normal throttles uh, for most of the flight, 104%. Then it exploded. Rick Husband was the commander. What you might not know about Rick Husband, who was trained right here in Houston, lived right down there by NASA, is that Rick Husband was a devout Christian and believer. So much so, he was so devoted to daily family worship that when he went on that mission, he had videotaped 18 family devotions for the 18 days he was supposed to be gone. 18 videotaped daily devotional lessons for his family where he could still be present to pray with his family and teach them the Bible. I want to ask you, what do you think those videos mean to his kids right now? What kind of legacy did he leave behind? Amen. And what kind of legacy are we leaving behind? Number four, daily family devotion strengthen each member of the family spiritually. Number five, Devotions each day with your family helps overcome the struggle they face daily in a broken world. Number six, family devotions keep Christ in the center of your home. When it's so easy these days for everything else to take center place. Number seven, family devotional time will help you and other members of your family live in a continual awareness of the abiding presence of God. Number eight. Devotions each day with your family help your family learn the teachings of the Bible. You see, the great tragedy in God's eyes is not that people aren't going to church. He said in Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't know the Bible anymore. Even our own kids don't know the Bible. Because you can't program them in an hour and a half on Sunday morning with enough biblical knowledge to undo the 166 and one half hours 
and the rest of the week, because there are 168 hours in the week where they're being taught everything else. Number nine, daily devotions with your family help reinforce godly values in your family. You think the only time, and this is what many of us do, we think the only time we need to stress a particular value is when a child has violated that value and we set them down and say, that's not right, this is the way you should do it. No, you teach them every day before they cross that line. And number 10, apart from loving your child, family devotions are the single most important thing that you will ever do for your family as a parent. Not sending them to a good school, not putting food on the table or giving them a place to stay. The single most important thing you will ever do as a family and you as a parent is you have daily devotions with them. How do you have daily devotions? And I'm going to go through this quickly. Number one, set a time. I realize schedules are busy, but family devotional time should be guarded very jealously so that we do not allow anything else to take its time or place. We need daily devotions in our family every single day. Number two, do not try to have a whole church service. Now you're going to be the preacher and preach for an hour and a half. No. Take 10 minutes in the morning or 10 in the evening. Or pray for your kids and bless them when they go to school and take 15 in the evening. You choose the schedule. But you have family devotionals, devotions every day. You say, what format should we follow? Number one, sing a worship song together. How great is our God. Sing with me how great. Is our God. I'll sing praises to your name. Oh Lord, praises to your name. Now you may be like me and not have the greatest voice in the world, but who cares? Because what you're doing is you're creating a worship environment. Sing a devotional song and then read a scripture and then discuss as a family what that scripture means. Some people are challenged and find that difficult. If that is a challenge, use a daily devotional guide to guide you. And there are many of them. One of, I picked up one and looked at it, read it through. I bought it and read it through. I've got it on my, on my iPad right here. It's one of the best I've ever seen. Daily devotionals for a whole year by Rick Warren based on the purpose-driven life. And it's a devotional for kids. It is powerful. Even adults could benefit from that. And it's only one page, short page each. Read one verse, and it, it, then it gives you the meat of the content of that meaning and how to apply it to life. Then you turn to your kids and say, now let's talk about this. What does this mean to you? And if you can develop in your home the opportunity for these kids to learn to talk about what their issues are when they're young, you won't have to wait until they're teenagers with their arms fall, folded, looking out the door and rolling their eyes at you when you're trying to say, come on, tell me what's going on in your life. Hear what I'm saying. If you can get them to open up and communicate when they're young. But we trust that the church is going to be able to handle all of this. And so what you do is you, you read the devotional. Dad, you do it. Start it out. Or mom, you do it if you're a single parent. And then all together take turns discussing the teaching and what it means. 
and then let each one take a turn from day to day. Today, John, it's your turn. Tomorrow, Shelly, it's yours. The next day, it's somebody else's. Take turns leading the family in prayer and encourage each other in the faith by talking through the issues that are outlined in this devotional. There's so many devotionals that exist now, so many. Jade wrote one. Trey Brown wrote one. Someday I'll write one. And there are thousands of them online. There are objections to family devotions, and I would not be doing justice if I didn't close by discussing these. There are objections. There really are. All of these objections that I'm about to mention and more may look like reasons not to have devotions with your family, but there aren't. They are actually compelling reasons why you should. The reasons why you must. Number one, we're too busy. Can't have family devotions, we're too busy. That's exactly why you need to put a break on the schedule, come to a screeching halt, and say we're going to sit down together and we're going to talk as a family for just a moment. Because you know most dads spend less than a minute and a half a day talking to their children. Did you know that? Past the potatoes. <laughs> I'll take some of the meat over there too. <laughs> Stop reaching. Hand me the salt and pepper. Now give me the remote control. I'm, I'm home now. And boy, it isn't long until you've used up your minute and a half. Amen. We're so busy. We have different schedules. Again, all the more compelling a reason why we need to come together because what many families do is they pass like distant ships in the night wave at each other from the bow of the boat across the ocean hello hey see you dad see you mom see you brother sister no you have to do better than that you're gonna have to get everybody together a time when everyone can sit together for 10 15 minutes that's not long the third objection is we're not all passionate about God well hello how are you going to ever teach them to be? They need to see reflected in that home Bible study, that devotional. They need to see reflected intimacy with God that this is not about rules and regulations and what you can't do and all. They need to realize the Bible contains the principles of life itself. Somebody say amen with me right now. Amen. My children are already teenagers. They still eat your food? They still, you still buy their Nikes? You still buy their, their clothes, their Air Jordans? Look, let me take it out of that spirit. If I had, I'm not down denigrating our children by using this as a comparison, but if I had a dog and it didn't know what I said, it would not be eating my Perina dog chow. Amen. You're going to stay in this house and eat my Purina dog chow. You're going to do what I said. And that is especially true with children. Where is this that, that parents all of a sudden are led by a 12-year-old? Well, you don't understand my child. No, the one I don't understand is you. Hello, somebody. Let me talk to you. Let me be a pastor and, and help you because there are some values you need to put in the life of your kids. They don't want to grow up. You don't want them to grow up acting like that. 
My spouse isn't saved. So, and so why is that a reason that you shouldn't have family devotions? Well, he won't participate. Well, you know how to go shopping without him? Amen. Let him sit over there. And you know what? While he's watching TV, he's... And you do that every day, every day, every day, and something's going to begin to get in his heart because the Word of God is like a wood screw. It works its way in. We enjoy our TV programs. Can't have family devotions because we enjoy TV. Of all of the reasons to object, that is, in my mind, the major reason why you should have family devotions. This sewer called Hollywood is pumping junk into your home every single day, undermining the values that you believe are necessary for your kids. And they're doing it through children's programs. They are. If you would watch some of the stuff that kids are watching these days, you would be appalled at what is coming over the television into your home. You need to shut the sewer down and say, you know, turn the thing off. We're going to sit here for a while and talk about God because you need something to counteract the influence of all that bad stuff. And I finish with this. Suppose you haven't been having family devotions or suppose your children are grown and you didn't have family devotions when they were smaller. I'm going to tell you what to do. Right up front, confess that you failed them in this regard and explain that you have come to learn belatedly the importance of family devotions. Now, why do I say that, that you need to do that? Because this is what I have had to do. I'm making a public confession. My son and I talked yesterday, and I asked him to forgive me for this very thing. You see, I raised these kids, as I mentioned earlier, as a career evangelist preaching every night, church every night, worship every night, preaching every night, fellowship every night, praying during the day, reading the Bible during the day, talking about God in our home. They went to Christian schools. We would travel all over the nation, stop and have a revival and base out from there. My kids would go to the Christian school there, always set it up where we would be at a Christian school. And every day they had devotions in the school. And I thought that was good enough as a parent. I mean, after all, they're hearing me preach every night and they're hearing me read the Bible every night and they're hearing me pray every night. I have come to understand that I did not fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6. I did not teach it in my home. Church is one thing. Did we talk about God in the home? Yes, we did. Did we read the Bible in the home? Yes, we did. But in terms of a daily focus on family devotions, I told my son, son, I want you to forgive me for that. And you as a dad need to raise your kids and have family devotions with them every single day. And I explained to him what I've explained to you just now is that I was thinking all this devotion, the atmosphere of devotion that we're in constantly was enough. And it wasn't. And I thank God that both my children love God. They're active in the church here and serve the Lord, the Lord in raising my grandchildren here. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm not so proud that I didn't hesitate. I went to my son and I said, I want you to forgive me. 
Because as a, a priest to my family, I should have also had you sitting down and your sister. And we should have taken the time together as a family instead of trusting that I was doing that well enough in the atmosphere of a church service. Well, you may be at that same place. The truth is, even the most devout Christian will only spend a few hours in church each week. It's not like it was when I traveled as an evangelist. Our devotional lives should be centered around where we spend most of our times. And where is that? In the home.